Welcome to the Motherhood Village podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Gonzalez Cumberbatch, and I know firsthand that it takes a village to raise a child, but most importantly, that it takes a village to uplift a mother. A mother's village is necessary and can take up many forms. Consider this podcast as part of your motherhood village. No matter the season of motherhood you're in, every conversation will give you more tools to add to your parenting toolbox, and you'll feel supported, inspired, and uplifted. So let's get into an informative and empowering conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Motherhood Village podcast. I am on with a very special guest, Miss Barbara Mojica, who is an author, educator, and parent. Barbara Ann Mojica provides tools to inspire, entertain, and educate the youth. History is the key to solving today's problems. Barbara is a historian and retired educated educator. Her education career spans more than 40 years, serving as a teacher, special educator, principal, and school district administrator. Using the whimsical Little Miss History character to narrate her book series, she makes learning history a fun-filled adventure. Barbara firmly believes if you don't know your history, you don't know what you're talking about. I love that. Um, Barbara, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for inviting me. Awesome. Okay, so let's jump into my icebreaker round. What is your favorite book or one that you would like to recommend? Ooh, one favorite book that's really tough, tough, tough. Uh, I've read all the classics and I, uh, I'm i an insatiable reader. But one I really like, I like the whole Gene All uh, prehistory series, The Clan of the Cave Bear and uh, The Mammoth Hunters, that whole series. As I said, I love to read, so I have no problem getting through her 1,000-plus-page books. I love the fact that there's so much in those books. Uh, Well, first of all, they're very well-researched, and there is just so much, not only history, but culture and archaeology and religion and customs and traditions and uh, I I just uh, was very impressed with with that whole series. So I'd say, yeah, that whole series would be up there with my favorites. Great. And what are the values that guide you and your family? The values of uh, that uh, guide me. Well, I think uh, honesty, uh, truth, empathy, compassion kindness I think those would be the main core awesome and if you could travel anywhere right now where would you go I would go to ancient Egypt because that's one place that I haven't been able to get to yet I have traveled extensively I as soon, I started traveling as soon as I had the means to do so. And unfortunately, as a child, my parents didn't have a lot of extra income. We didn't have a car and we didn't get around too much. Uh, living in the city, that wasn't always a problem, but it, it kind of limited my horizons. So as soon as I was able, I started traveling and I've been to probably close to 30 countries and uh, more than half the states. So I just... What's been your favorite? What's been your favorite you've been to so far? My favorite. 
I think the most enlightening was my trip to the Soviet Union uh, oh, before okay. uh, when it was still a communist country. I, I did a whole tour of Eastern Europe when they first opened it up to the West. And that was an eye-opener for sure. <laughs> but uh, as far as enjoyable, I think my favorite country is Italy. Mine too, my favorite place on earth. And I haven't been to 30 countries. I've traveled a lot domestically and internationally, but Italy was the most magical place. Um, but yeah, and I would imagine the Soviet Union and places you've been to the history that you get from there. So I can imagine all that you throw into your travels because it relates to, you know, your belief that if you don't, you know, know your history, then you don't know what you're talking about. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you about that. But my last icebreaker on question, how has motherhood transformed you? Well, motherhood is kind of tied in with everything that I've done in my life. I've always been involved with children. So motherhood was, was kind of an extension of that. I had been teaching for eight years uh, before I became a mother. And when I became a mother, I kind of saw the, the other end of the picture. You know, I was, in a, in a sense, I was a mother when I had the children in my classroom, but I didn't see the everyday struggles that, that uh, parents face until I was actually a mother, so. Uh, I think kind of the the teaching kind of gave me the background, but I hadn't really, really understood uh, the role of a parent until, until I became one myself. But as far as transforming me, uh, I think it just gave me a greater depth of uh, experience uh, and helped me in my teaching career because eventually, I realized as I went along, and I had been teaching about 20 years, when I decided to go back and to go back to school and learn more about special needs children. Because during my course of teaching, I came to understand how the education system was failing a lot of these kids and how their needs weren't being met and how children learn in so many different ways. Uh, and I learned that with, with my own children as well as those in the classroom. But uh, I went back and I kind of did a 180 and I started working with severely impaired children. And that was a whole other dimension to my understanding, not only of uh, education, but understanding people in general and, and families and, and the way the whole society is put together. Yeah, and I'm sure that was fascinating. And I, I love your aspect of that. And I, I feel like you don't know what you don't know. So it's 100%. I remember when I was in corporate and I had a team and I was like, oh, this feels like parenthood right because I have a team to manage you have all these personalities and I've, I've heard my own mother explain parent motherhood and friends so I was like oh it's similar but then you don't know until you become a parent and you're like oh wait a minute there's so much where 
myself is included in that. Um, so I love how you you put that together because I think it's so true. You don't know until you're in it and you're like, wow. And it, it, it really does transform you. Yeah, there's, okay. there's no manual for becoming a parent. None whatsoever. Yeah. I, my, my biggest thing, and everyone hears me say this, I say the hardest thing to me, and I only have one, and I'm four years in, I feel the hardest part about motherhood is you have to help raise this child or multiple children, um, and you have to be mindful, you have to be present, you have to do all the things that you want to do to be a quote-unquote good mom and to be there and be open while you're dealing with your own bag of issues. You know, if you've had a hard exactly. day, if you've had this, I, to me, is the hardest part of you trying to navigate that when you want to be patient with your child, but they've called your name a million times and you had a, a long day and you're like snapping at them, but they don't know. So to me, that's, that's, that's been the struggle that I've seen the commonality in talking now, goodness, a hundred episodes in with different moms is that all commonality that we're all trying to do our best while we got all the other stuff that we got going on, but we could probably talk about that for, for hours, but let's dive into you, Barbara, and um, your Little Miss History series. So I know you have children. Why don't you speak very high level of, you know, what are your ch children's ages? And then we'll jump into like your mission with your books and all of that great meat and potatoes. Okay. Well, History. my children are all grown up. Uh, both of them are adults and they have their own children. So actually I have six grandchildren at this oh, point that's awesome. including yeah. two sets of twins so each of my children has a set of twins uh, my daughter has fraternal twins a boy and a girl my son has identical girls and then each of them has another uh, oh child God. so there are there are um, five girls and one boy <laughs> wow Did, does twins run in your family my mother was a fraternal twin. Okay. So there you go. Twins ones in my family. I actually hoped to have twins, but it, it didn't pass to me. Um, but wow, that's so fascinating. So congrats to your grandma. That's awesome, which I know is a whole different level of parenting, right? You know, your, your job is done now. You're the grandparent of it. Um, so again, I'm sure we could have a whole conversation about your, your transition into being a grandparent, but let's dive into Little Miss History. Um, I'm fascinated with this and I know your love of history just based on, you know, being on your website and seeing your background and all of that. What's your mission with the stories? Um, what is Little Miss History and how do you hope to impact your community with it? Well, my mission is to make learning about history fun to inspire kids to want to learn more not only about the history that i talk about but to learn more about their history and you know and to teach them the skills that will empower them to become critical thinkers and our future leaders. And I feel that the schools today do a much better job of teaching the what than teaching the how. So they're more concerned with what is being taught than how it's being taught. And I think a lot of children are missing those critical thinking skills, which are so important for them to succeed in any 
any part of life, no matter what they do. So teaching them critical thinking, which of course means, you know, being able to truly focus on a problem, being able to analyze information and to see all sides of a problem, then to be able to infer and make judgments based on the information that they got and understanding how that information is communicated before they try to make any kind of conclusion. And I think today, especially now that we have social media, we are very, very often inclined to rush through thinking to uh, form opinions rather than use facts to base our judgments. So children today have the internet, which is wonderful. I mean, when I was growing up, I didn't have the internet. I had to go to the library. I had to get the book out. I had to find the information. I had to take notes on the information. Then I had to take all of my notes and rewrite it and put it into some kind of logical format. So today, a child goes to the internet, types in the question, and gets the answer. Okay, this is the answer. But they often don't go beyond that initial step. They find one answer. Oh, this, okay, I got the answer. This must be the answer. Or they go to social media and they, they see what their friends are, are saying on social media. And they say, well, okay, so this, is, this must be what's going on. All of my friends seem to agree. Are they getting the whole picture? No, because social media is not giving us all the information. They're using algorithms to present a certain yeah. amount of information, but not all the facts. So I think it's really important that we teach children how to differentiate between facts and opinions. May I ask you, um, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but there was something you said, and I don't want to lose the point. You said when you started um, behind your mission about critical thinking, how does critical thinking tie to history? Why is that? Like, I know you mentioned, but what what is the, the synergy between the two of having that critical thinking, which I agree, I think is existential for children to have. Again, in working in corporate, I remember working with individuals that them not having the critical thinking skills to be able to dig deep proactively, like search for an answer as opposed to just coming to me and say, well, what am I supposed to do here? And it's like, I don't know. You got to figure it out type of thing. I was like, goodness gracious, that's a skill set that not it's it's a lot of people are missing I, I from the people I worked with. So I can imagine mm -hmm. to your point, this generation. So, yes. Yeah, so what is that synergy between the history and the critical thinking? Well, Historians use critical thinking all the time. And if you can kind of compare it almost to a scientist. So a historian looks at something that they want to study. So it could be a person or an event or a, a set of circumstances. And then the, the historian has to gather the evidence. So the evidence in history would be the primary sources 
the facts coming from letters, journals, artifacts, uh, diaries, something that has happened at that particular time. Gotcha. That's where you start. Uh, then you look for citations and information from those sources. Mm -hmm. Then you could start analyzing them. But when you're analyzing them, you also have to find out about comparing to science again, the variables, what else was going on, what other events were happening at that time. I gotcha. Who else was involved? How were they connected together? Uh, was this information known to everybody or was only part of the information known? How is it communicated? And of course, the way things were communicated a hundred years ago is a lot different from the way that things are communicated today. So all of that plays a part. And you have to do all of those things before you can come to a conclusion. And sometimes in history and in other other areas of life as well, there is no one conclusion. Sometimes there's more than one answer. Or sometimes mm. there might not be an answer at all. So Understood. we can't be quick to to come uh, to judgment. And, and that ties into what I was saying about, you know, just l seeing one side of the issue or looking at opinions instead of real facts. And it's so important to teach children the difference between facts and opinions. So before we jump into you creating this series, you spoke about how social media has kind of changed the way we think and behave, right? Because children now have so much readily available and it could be a great thing and it can also be a not so great thing because to your point, is it factual or is it people's opinions? Like we, we just don't know. That's the unfortunate part about this massive thing that we call the internet, um, especially with people getting, you know, YouTube and people getting information without it being correct. But how do you think parents can help that then with their children? Is it just having continuation with the dialogue that you're, you know, if they're watching something or they're going to come to you that you just have that open dialogue to say, hey, you might come across some things that are just not real and you, the source might not be the best source to go. Like, how do you recommend parents have those kind of conversations? Well, I think parents can do a lot because, of course, parents are the first teachers. Uh, before a child even gets to school. And so much of a child's brain development takes place before the child even enters school. So, But parents can teach kids to be independent thinkers. You can ask your kids opinions on things. I even mm -hmm. if you take your child out into the community and ask, just giving them ch a couple of words. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder who lived in that old house? I wonder what kind of food they ate. I wonder if they dressed the same as we do. I, you know, I wonder what they did to earn a living or I wonder what going to school was like for them. You know, giving them just a couple of jump starts and um, not always giving them one way of thinking. By that, I mean modeling themselves. So a, a parent can refrain from always say, saying, well, yeah, this is, this, is, this is the way we're going to do it. 
instead elicit a child's opinion on it. Um, mm. You know, do you think that this is right? Do you think that this is wrong? Again, if you take them out into the community, uh, if they notice something wrong, like the swing's broken, oh, is sure. this a problem? What do, what do you think we should do about this? Uh, I have a couple of uh, mini lessons that, that I've done on things like this for children, how they could be a good citizen or how, how they could write a letter if they if mm. they found uh, a problem and asking or even taking children to meetings in the community. If you're going to a meeting in the community, take the child with you, you know, let them hear what's going on. I, I'm not talking about a tiny toddler, yeah. but you know, there, there are situations where you can involve the, the, the child's, uh, you know, in, in, in taking responsibility. Sure. That's another thing parents can do. And I love that because I think a lot of times we think that our child that our that we need to do it without our children. And this goes back to my initial point where I say this is the the um, the issue or one of the issues with motherhood is yes, trying to be mindful to be like, oh, this could be a teaching moment for my child, but I'm trying to get from point A to point Z and don't really have the time to say, hey, what do you think about this? Um, which goes back to my initial point. So how do we how can we help to instill that that a mother could be a little bit more kind of think about look everything is basically a teaching moment too i know for me during the pandemic that was big because when my son wasn't going to preschool or to to daycare um i was like oh goodness like what am i gonna do i'm not i'm not gonna do teaching plans like this is not my thing and then i remember talking to someone on my podcast and they were like but everything is a teaching moment if you're cutting onions if you're gonna cook if you're gonna whatever how many forks do you think we need how many people and i was like oh goodness they were like you can make it a teaching moment and and for a long time or actually even still my husband and i talked to our son as if he's like this little grown man this you know even though he's only four but that he's an adult who can have conversations so to that to that point then also how do they how does that tie into also also strengthening their education right so i know reading and all of that but how does that help also strengthen their education if a parent especially can't homeschool and they are sending their children you know to, to public school private school wherever they are how do they add on that additional layer of education without also getting overwhelmed in the process well by one way is to involve a child uh to discover their own passions and their own interests mm -hmm. uh encouraging a child to always try new things and even if they don't succeed that's a really good teaching lesson because mm -hmm. children have to learn how to fail as well as of to course. succeed so just encouraging them whenever they show any interest in something new letting them try it you know letting them be bold encouraging their curiosity and encouraging them to find the solution you know if something happens uh ask them oh how do you think we could fix this mm -hmm. even simple tasks around the house like today we order something online and usually it comes in a box and often we have to put it together. So, mm -hmm. you know, involving children. Oh, how do you think we have to put this together? What piece do you think I have to take out and do first? You know, just yeah. 
soliciting their uh, their opinions and uh, involving them in your everyday routine. So you have to do certain things that might be mundane routine tasks, <laughs> but involve the child in that. You know, when you you take the child to the grocery store, mm-hmm. you know, show them what's on the shelf and, and, and say, well, there are two different types on the shelf. Which one do you think I should buy? And which one do you think would be better? You know, just mm-hmm. involving them in, in, in everyday no, no matter how making a recipe, For you sure. know, yeah. What do you, what do you think, think it, we have to put in next, or you know, do we have to stir it? Do we have to chop it? Do whatever it might all, be. And, and to your point, it doesn't all have to be educational, as we think of the textbook, you know, no pun intended, textbook, tech, you know, education of like actual reading and writing, where it's like there's so many other levels of education that I think we we when i say we i know for myself of getting overwhelmed like oh my goodness he should be writing where to your point truthfully the emotional intelligence aspect and the critical thinking and all of that and having those conversations is more important because your child will eventually learn how to write they're not going to be in college not learning how to write right those are the hard skills that will be there it's all of these underlying skills that we need to really bring forth more than anything right Right, and the the hands-on, the sensory things too. Yes, you know, uh, developing uh, graphomotor skills when you have them help you in the kitchen or help you do an errand, you're developing that as well. A hundred percent. So now let's get into Little Miss history, and then I, I do have other questions, but I know it'll tie together. What was the inspiration behind creating it? Um, you know, who is the book for? How does it go? Talk about that. Well, the inspiration behind creating it, I had been retired about a couple of days before I realized this wasn't going to work just being retired. Not going to work out for me. So what I did was I said, you know, I want to explore more history, uh, get really get back into that, and I started writing articles for a local news magazine about history. And then I, I realized I really wanted to keep in touch with the kids. And some of my grandkids are far away, so I don't see them all, you know, all the time as nearly as much as I'd like to. So I said, you know, I'd really like to keep teaching. And my husband suggested why don't you create a character to narrate the history for kids? And my husband happens to be an artist. Nice. And uh, he has written books, but he has been drawing since the age of five. So he has actually some experience drawing for children's books. And he's done comics and, and things like that as well. So he created this character, Little Miss History, who was a younger version of me. And like me, she loves to travel. She loves to explore. So she wears this hiking outfit, kind of like a park ranger kind of camping outfit. And I used to do a lot of hiking in the mountains. Uh, She wears these 
rose-colored glasses, and that reflects her optimistic viewpoint of the world. She always looks on the bright side of things. She wears pigtails like I used to wear when I was a teenager. And she wears these big, oversized hiking boots, and they're in memory of my father, who had huge feet. So she's just kind of like a a fun, composite of me. And her features are a bit exaggerated. She's a cartoon-like character. So she guides the adventures. And then the books, there are 14 of them right now. Wow. And I'm working on another one uh, right now, be out in a, in, pro- probably before the end of the summer. Uh, I use places, people, things that I feel are of interest to different kinds of children. Mm-hmm. So... It runs the gamut. Some of my books are iconic sites like the Statue of Liberty and Mount Rushmore. Other books are more in the vein of uh, outdoors and exploration and science. So I have a book on Sequoia National Park where I talk about the redwood and the sequoia trees. That gets into a lot of science as to how the trees grow. It also gets into the history of the explorers. It also gets into other issues like pollution because Sequoia National Park is one of, in fact, it is the most polluted national park in the the system. And it's sometimes unhealthy to breathe the air there. So we talk about all kinds of issues. Uh, I have a book on the North Pole, that one. We talk about exploration to the North Pole, climate, uh, the animals Mm. that live in the North Pole. We talk about the night before Christmas and who may or may not have written it because it may not have been Samuel Clement Moore who wrote it. We talk about um, the eight countries that claim territory in the Arctic. So we talk about the flags of the countries, why they're there. Uh, We talk about, of course, Santa Claus, because we couldn't do the North Pole. So we go into how the whole story evolved, the different traditions of Santa Claus, uh, Nast and his creation of the cartoon, the Coca-Cola Santa Claus. We go into a whole range of issues uh and some of my books are go way back in time like i have one on la brea tar pits and that one goes back to prehistory so in that book we talk about the la brea tar pits in california and uh, they're on top of an uh, oil field the we talk about the people who lived there how, uh, how the oil was discovered we talk about the mammals that lived in prehistory, how they were trapped in the tar pits. And we talk about the museum there. So we talk about science. We talk about the scientists, how they clean and study the fossils. And uh, we talk about the garden. They've recreated a prehistoric garden that you can walk through when you visit there and see the kinds of plants that were growing in prehistoric times. Plus, of course, the fossils of the, the huge, these huge animals that were trapped in the tar pits. And I have books on military history. Uh, those, again, are more of world history. 
Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum, which covers mm -hmm. the gamut, uh, World War One uh, airplanes, World War Two and its history, uh, the Vietnam wow. War, its history in the space program, how it rescued the space capsules, and then the Enterprise, uh, the space shuttle is on the flight deck, and how they can go through that ship and uh, hands-on explore, get into a helicopter that was used in the Vietnam War, look at the space capsules, watch movies of, of, of the things that happened in World War II. So it's a very, very, again, multidisciplinary kind of thing. I like to mention people who were forgotten in history, uh, like and, uh, Anderson Ruffin Abbott, who was a, a African American surgeon, and he happened to be at mm -hmm. Ford's Theater when Lincoln was assassinated. He was a friend wow. of the Lincoln family. I talk about Alonzo Swan, who who was on the Intrepid and. He was a military hero with his, uh, at that time, segregated African-American unit. And it took 50 years, but he finally was awarded uh, the uh, recognition that he should have received originally. We talk about Native American rights. Um, we talk about things like the secret room behind Mount Rushmore that very few people know is there. You know, um, all kinds of things. And I make the books interactive. So I ask the kids questions. Uh, I elicit their opinions. And I continue that when I uh, are fortunate enough to uh, get into the classrooms and work with the kids in person. I, you know, enhance the conversation even more. I provide questions yeah. to teachers. You know, uh, and in addition to the questions that the kids are asking Absolutely. within the book. So what, what age uh, group is are these books for? Well, I usually gear them in presentations for uh, K through six. Wow. Okay. But younger and, children like uh, them also because they're picture books. So we use mixed media. There are portraits. There are actual okay. photographs of the sites. Uh, and uh, there are, of course, there's the character. So it's it's a conglomeration of all kinds of media. Within and, the you know, I guess the, when I imagine it and you said it's interact, which I love, um, but that's a lot. I, I, I would imagine like you would have no um, no way of being like, I don't have any content. Like history is everywhere. History is everything, depending on what you want to talk about. So how do you decide what topics you are going to talk about? Because there's so much. I mean, you mentioned things that I, I didn't even know. So those are certain great things. But of course, it, it's almost like, do you take approach where, okay, they're talking about this in school, so I'm going to elaborate it? Or do are you even talking about things that they don't really mention in school? What is your... Um, uh, your plan with that? What does that plan of action look like once you determine what are the topics or what these stories are going to be? Well, a couple of things. First of all, there are usually places that I can get to and visit in person. In most cases, they have actual photographs. 
uh, except of course the North Pole. Haven't <laughs> haven't been to that one, uh, but in most cases I have been able to go visit there, so they're accessible. Sometimes they're related to interests uh, that teachers have uh, expressed an interest in in using or doing. So w one example would be I've done quite a few books uh, on. New York, I have the Intrepid, I have the Statue of Liberty, I have Ellis Island, and uh, I live in upstate New York, but a lot of uh, teachers, uh, when they teach local history, which is a fourth grade, part of a fourth grade study in New York, they often visit local sites. So what I did is I combined those three books, The Intrepid, The Ellis Island, and The Statue of Liberty, and made a trilogy book. So I have one book that's called The Adventures of Little Miss History, and that has all three of those books inside of it. So I did that one specifically for teachers. But it, as I said, it's usually a matter of being able to get there and uh, physically visit the site or something that I've noticed kids are interested in. Uh, and I have a very young fan who was only four when he first read my La Brea Tar Pits and he, he just loves archaeology uh, at the age of four and he was uh, eventually he he did get to visit the tar pits, and he—I was so great that he—he he sent me a picture of him there. And oh my, that is visiting. awesome! It's almost like a little Carmen San Diego, but like you're so in depth and bringing such great knowledge of what these, whether it's important moments in history or important places in history. So that's amazing that someone who's four years old can tap into that and actually go and know it as a place of like uh, of that they can that they can go to that they can mm -hmm. attest to that can learn more about um but i want to ask is it is it important to learn all history good and bad do you plan to to dive deeper with slavery and do you plan to the holocaust like is it important to know all of that and to dive deep and and get to really the underlying layers of some of the things that maybe people are uncomfortable in talking about well, I bring out those kinds of issues, and I have already done that in several books. Um, I mentioned Alonzo Swan in the Intrepid book, and he was a hero on the Intrepid. In the North Pole book, I talk about Matthew Henson, which not too many people are familiar with. He was really the first African-American explorer. He went with Perry on, I, th I believe it was 28 separate explorations and he was pretty much ignored until recently and he was with Perry when he went to the North Pole at the beginning of the 20th century and it's only now being recognized uh, of all the work he did a lot of the research and a lot of the preparation wow. for the trips so that's another example uh, in my Mount Rushmore book, I talk about Native American rights uh, and how the Lakota Sioux had their territory taken from them. And uh, we built Mount Rushmore, but now they are building their own memorial, the Crazy Horse mm -hmm. Memorial, which is near Mount Rushmore. And there is a uh, 
a division in the UN. Uh, there's a division for uh, Native uh, American rights. And I talk about James Anaya at the UN and how he was uh, fighting for Native American rights as well. So, uh, the, you know, sometimes it can be a little controversial. Uh, my Sequoia book, I mentioned John Muir. And uh, a lot of people see him, well, he is the father, called the father of national parks. And he did a lot to make sure that uh, parks were protected. He also had kind of a shaded, a little bit of a jaded past because he was an immigrant from uh, Scotland. And he went off during the Civil War and left his parents' farm. He and his brother actually went to Canada during the Civil War, so they wouldn't be drafted. And his parents were left to to run uh, the farm by themselves. And we have letters from parents, you know, asking asking him to come home. And so, you know, sometimes I, you know, people are like, oh, John Muir, you know. <laughs> it's, but, you know, I try to show children that we all have good and bad. And mm. uh, we are all wrapped in memories. Uh, some of our memories are good. Some of our memories are bad. Some of our history is uh, something that we would want to preserve as a legacy for our sure. future. And there are things in our history that we want to learn from and make sure that we don't make those mistakes in the past. My uh, Mount Vernon book's another one. We talk a little bit about slavery, how they were so important uh, to running the plantation, but how our founding fathers, almost all of them, with well, not, not maybe Adams, but most of them thought that it was something that would uh, be solved eventually, but something that couldn't be tackled right away because they foresaw that it would be the undoing of the country, that the Southern economy would not survive without slavery. So Washington pretty much believed that it, it, it was something that would be solved. He did free all of his slaves upon his death. Uh, most of the slaves that were at Mount Vernon actually belonged to his wife, Martha. Uh, she inherited most of the slaves and that they weren't his. And in my book uh, uh, that will be released soon uh, on Jefferson and Monticello, we talk about uh, the oral history project and how the descendants of Jefferson are now being interviewed uh, as part of an oral history project to preserve the legacy of their story at Monticello. And I, I find it all fascinating and I'm, um, I have so many more questions to add to that, but one of the things that comes to mind is, um, as you were talking and it hit me, it's like, you know, we've been talking about you know, understanding the difference between facts, opinions, but I want to dive deeper. Is there any way that instead of take the opinion out of the question, out of the equation, that we can hear history, even you doing the research and all of that, to where the interpretation of the history can get, not really the opinion, keep that out, but the interpretation of history or something that we think is a fact, could that be 
um, misconstrued? Can the can the interpretation get mixed up? Is that level of that of like as people are hearing about history, or is history just black and white and the facts are the facts? Other than like we said, you know, where yeah, you can hear from multiple people and they're actually not speaking true history, but the interpretation of it, or is just like I said, history just black and white and it is what it is. Well, the facts are the facts. Uh they really can't be changed. Of course, the way we interpret them can be changed. And if you look at the news, that's that's a good example today. Because again, if you would go back to the beginning of uh, nightly news. So if you went back to something, you know, my father used to love to watch John Cronkite. And he would report every night we report the news and he would report the facts and you pretty much got the facts now when you turn the news on television you get a panel of journalists or quote experts some of whom are really experts and some of whom are self-proclaimed experts and you get a piece of news and then you get the opinion on it so how do you know which of these opinions is true i mean it's true that you're getting different sides of the story but if you look at the fact was it reported accurately because you can turn on the television and sometimes and I, I can attest to this, you could see a, one event reported on multiple channels and you will sometimes see them using the exact same wording and it's almost like they got together and decided this is the way we're going to interpret the story. It's kind of like, you know, the buzzwords, the, mm-hmm. the, cliche, the, the, the glamorized, the, the cliche, yes, yes, yes. Let's glamorize this. Yes, yes, absolutely. And we, one thing we can do as parents and teachers is to train children to look for that. Ah, and that was going to actually lead into my next question is, to your point, you're like, how do we, and how do we, and I'm like, yeah, how do we, how can we help our children to train and even our own selves so that we don't get, um, for lack of a better word, sucked into this glamorization of the news and really know, okay, well, these are the facts of it. What, what are some other tips that we can look at to, to decipher? I think that is a great one. Um, to have that. Is it something that we hear, like my husband will listen to different, um, new sites and then kind of from there say, okay, I see what they're saying to see what they're saying. Um, Cause he's like, to your point nowadays, you're like, you just don't know quote unquote the facts or is it going to be a panel what's being discussed? So yeah, how, how, what other ways can we do to help to decipher between, between that and knowing that it's actual, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's a fact and it's something that is a, a true, true statement as opposed to them trying to glamorize this situation. Well, I think having children become aware, again, training, and, and I do, I have a, a couple of videos on this, and I have a couple of my teaching lessons on my YouTube channel that, that address this. 
having them understand that a fact is something that you can prove is true and that can't be changed. And an opinion is what a particular person thinks about that fact or the way that they interpret it. Sometimes you can tell by, you know, outside physical clues like the way they're dressed or the way they act. Are they emotional? Are they being logical? Are they are they upset? You know, how how are they communicating that to you? And then what's bias? Well bias is when someone sees something with some kind of prejudice. And that could be from oh, multiple different yep. sources. That could be because it's a kind of social think or group think. Well, that's what all my friends think. Or it could be from a particular religious point of view. It could be from somebody's ego, somebody who thinks he's an expert and that person just always thinks, well, well, I have a degree in X and I am the expert on this and mm -hmm. really doesn't take the time to look into all of the information. Just, well, well, I'm the expert. I know, you know, so there could be <laughs> a lot of different uh, prejudices coming from a lot of different sources and you really have to train children to you know look at that's why i say if you ask a child to comment to give mm -hmm. an opinion ask them what they think about things that will give them more practice in you know being able to interpret people the way the, from their physical clues from you know certain words that they always say sure. you know mm -hmm. teaching kids that as a parent I'm not always right mm -hmm. and even an expert can be wrong a teach a, even teachers can be wrong sometimes you know so, so they, they have to learn that uh, a leader a teacher even a, a boss Anybody in authority sure. can also make a mistake, can also be wrong. So I, I, I think, you know, it's something that you can do gradually over a period of time. But uh, if you do it often yeah. enough, it will kind of become a part of their way of thinking, their persona, you know, they'll they'll become no, I think, aware of it. And I think that's so important because I think in the day and age, because we are surrounded by the YouTube, because we're surrounded by so much opinions and so many people have a platform to speak on whether it's truthful or not. Um, I think I think this is actually critical in helping our children to understand that so that as they get older, they're being more or like my little four-year-old is getting more exposed to things online or whatever it is that there's that he's seeing that he can start having this foundation built inside of him. Um, so before we kind of get to how people can connect with you, because you mentioned the YouTube page and all that, which I think is awesome. I want to have one more main question tied to all of this. And it's the last question. But why is our cultural heritage important? And how can parents help children to understand and appreciate it? Okay, our cultural heritage? Well, I 
think, again, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. We all have history embedded in us because the moment we're born, we become a character in history. I always tell children, history is not <laughs> about just the big, important people and events. History mm-hmm. is really something like a reality show. It's about real people like us who get up in the morning and eat breakfast and go to school and have to earn a living and provide for their family. And we can show them by getting in tune with our own cultural heritage, with our families. We can show them the importance of members of our family. Teach them about the people that came before, their ancestors, their grandparents, their great-grandparents. Have them make family trees. Have them talk to those uh, relatives who are available and just you know, give them a few clue kind of questions to ask. What was it like when you went to school? What kind of food did you eat growing up? What kind of clothes did you wear? Uh, What was your house like? Um, What did you do uh, for fun? You didn't, maybe they didn't have TV, but what did they do when they wanted to have fun? What kind of games did they play? What was their school like? Well, you know, all of these kinds of uh, questions. And then sharing with them parts of your culture, like uh, celebrating uh, the foods that are important to the culture, having them make a recipe, having them uh, go to a a parade or uh, some kind of cultural event in the community if if it's available that kind of thing. And then within the community, as I was saying before, making them aware that communities have memories too. Communities are built by people who come together for some common reason, whether it be because there are other people in their culture who live there, or whether they came together originally, maybe because they had a certain kind of job, or and this place had the had the uh, facilities for that kind of job. Maybe they worked in a mill. So maybe this community that they settled in had a waterfall and they used the waterfall for the mill. You know, why did they get together? What what did they do? How did they preserve their memories? Uh, is there anything that still exists in the community that reflects that culture? I'm, I happen to live in a community that was founded in the 1600s so Mm -hmm. I can uh, there are a lot of remnants of of history and culture but you can find that in any community uh, whether it's a whether it's an old building or a historical marker you could find that in any uh, building and then teaching them that extends out into citizenship so when you live in a community you become a citizen of that community and you have connections and empathy with the people who live in that community and you have a responsibility to respect and to follow the laws and 
to share whatever is in that community together and use these memories as kind of a framework uh, or a, a, a legacy, you could say, uh, of how can you move forward? What can you build on in that community to make the community better? And what kind of mistakes were made? Can we correct those mistakes? What can we do better? How can we help each other to create a better future? Um, I love that. Um, yeah, it, it, I, this has been fascinating. I, history is kind of was one of my favorite subjects growing up. So um, with that said, how can people connect with you? How can people purchase the books? I know you said you had YouTube channels. I will put this all in the show notes, but also you know, tell my listeners how they can connect with you. How can they get this information that you have? Well, the best way uh, to connect is to go to my website, which is simply littlemisshistory.com. And from my website, they can get to virtually any of my resources. So I have buttons on my website. You can contact me directly. You can go to my YouTube channel. On my YouTube channel, I have teaching videos, history for kids told by kids. I have national park videos. I have teaching videos, and they're not just on history. They're on all kinds of subjects, science, math, reading. Uh, I have tips for parents and teachers. I have tips for authors. Um, I have my podcasts there. And I also have a blog. Uh, on my blog, I review what I call family-friendly literature. So I review books for all ages, from toddler all the way up to young adult. And I have tips for parents about literacy and reading and history and collecting memories, all kinds of articles on my blog. So they can click on my blog and, and get to those as well as my social media channels, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and, and so on. I also do have a Pinterest board. And on the <laughs> Pinterest board, I collect all the resources. So if they're looking for something quick, like you want to book for uh, a holiday or you want to find some uh, teaching lessons on reading or math or I have a zillion things on my Pinterest board where you can just kind of <laughs> go in and uh, find some resources. And as we wind down here, I want to ask you, you know, it's called the Motherhood Village, and I believe it takes a village to raise a child. Not only does it take a village to raise a child, but it takes a village to uplift a mother. Um, so who has had the most impact on your life other than your parents or maybe a parental figure? What have you learned from that and how maybe consciously or subconsciously have you kind of implemented it into your life? I think the person who had the most influence on me outside of my family would have been a teacher that I had in high school. Uh, she was coincidentally a history teacher and she made history come alive. I always loved history, but with this teacher, she, she just 
exploded and made everything so vivid and real and just immersed immersed me into it she also was the one who took me aside and told me uh, you really have to go to college and I had no uh, ambitions for that because my parents didn't have uh, the finances for that and she said oh you'll find a way she says if you work hard you'll be able to go through the public which at that time there was a a, a public education system with uh, uh, the colleges based on merit and I did just that I worked really hard I graduated high school with honors and I wound up going to college and getting a scholarship for a master's degree so she was the one who pointed me you know in a direction that I might never have taken if I hadn't met her you know when we look back and realize the people who've had that impact other than parents, you, you realize how important it is to surround our children with. I know my husband used to tell me that because I had a lot of separation anxiety after my son was born. And, you know, my husband was like, no, I need it. You know, he needs to be around other adults, other children. He's like, because that's how he learns. He's like, I, you know, grew up with my aunts, my uncles, <clears throat> my grandparents helped raise me. He's like, and they helped mold me. And I was like, gosh, that's so true because he's like, they're going to teach him things that we don't know, that we are not teaching them. So he's like, he needs to be able to get as much education, you know, as long as it's in a safe environment and with people who are loving and have his best interests at heart um, with it. So um, thank you for sharing that story. And I love how you said, you know, coincidentally, she happened to be history and how you fell in love with that. Um, I love how that kind of comes full circle. So Barbara, as we wind up here at the end of the interview, any other final thoughts to the podcast community, to the moms out there, parents, teachers, what, any other final thoughts? Well, outside of my character's little motto, if you don't know your history, you don't know what you're talking about, I would also say learn something new every day because I think adults as well as children should continue to explore curiosity and learn something new every day. I think that's what really enriches us and allows us to continue to grow. So I kind of believe it, you should uh, learn something every day and you will be able to live uh, a better life every day. So love to learn and then live to live to uh, a ripe old age hopefully <laughs> <laughs> i love that and i love learning something new every day it's it's so true um the ability to be able to do that is a blessing barbara it's been a pleasure having you on thank you so much for sharing your story for um inspiring my listeners for teaching us something new today for teaching myself something new um it's been a pleasure continued blessings to you for love and light and see you soon talk soon Thank you Bye. so much. I enjoyed chatting. Thank you for listening to this impactful episode of the Motherhood Village podcast. Subscribe to my show so you'll never miss a future episode. You may also rate and review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with someone that can use it as part of their Motherhood Village. Remember, your village can take up many forms and you do not have to do it alone. Connect with me at themotherhoodvillage.com. 
Blessings to you for love and light.